Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, we come to a kind of a shift in our study of Luke's gospel. We get into those portions of scripture that we, most of us, are most likely pretty familiar with as we begin to see things lead up rapidly to the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the whole chapter this morning, Luke chapter 22, and some of you are saying that's 71 verses. Um, and, you know, I debated on reading the whole chapter together, but I knew in our age of short attention spans that I was going to lose you. So we're going we're gonna to look at it from 30,000 feet this morning, and we're going to look at the whole chapter, and then we're going to come back and see three applications here at the end. But I want us to be reminded of what we learn in Luke chapter 22 as we lead up into those last moments of Jesus' life. And I've broken it into six different sections as we look at the chapter as a whole. And you can open your Bible, Luke 22, and, and we're just going to do this 30,000 feet view. And then we're going to come back and see, bring three things to the surface before, before we leave today. But we see the chapter begin in verses 1 through 6 with the betrayal of Jesus. The betrayal of Jesus. An interesting thing happens in those verses. The Bible says that Satan, not a demon... But Satan entered into Judas. So this is not demon possession. This is devil possession. This is Satan possession. This is something uh, that we haven't seen before in Scripture and probably haven't seen since, at least to our knowledge, that Satan enters into Judas, one of the twelve. The chief priests, the officers, they've been trying to find a way to get Jesus away from the crowd so that they can arrest him. And, and Judas, with Satan now indwelling in him, goes to the chief priest. He goes to the officers. They're glad to hand him over some money. And he immediately begins seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus, to get him away from the crowd. The second thing we see is in verses 7 through 23. And we see the Passover take place in verses 7 to 23. Jesus sends Peter and John to go find a place to prepare for the Passover. You see, the Passover wasn't just a meal they had. They had to actually prepare for the Passover. They would have to literally sweep every corner of the house. They would have to dust every surface of the house to ensure that there was not even one small particle of leaven left in the place. So he sent Peter and John ahead to go find a place to prepare for the Passover, to make sure they could have the Passover meal he tells them who to look for, man carrying a pitcher of water, following back. He'll provide you a large furnished upper room for you to get ready. And then the disciples come, Jesus reclines at the table, and we know what happens as he's, as he's taking this Passover meal. He interrupts it, and he, and he applies it to their lives in a way. He shows them how the Passover points to this new covenant that would come about through His crucifixion, through His death, through His burial and resurrection. And we know how Jesus took the bread and He broke it and He told the disciples, this is my body, take it, eat it, and do it in remembrance of me. And He took the cup and He said, drink of this, for this is my blood of the new covenant. And we, we celebrate that, we remember that, we proclaim that 
even today as we remember the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we take that bread, we remember the perfect, sinless, spotless, unleavened life that Jesus lived. As we take that cup, we remember the fact that not only did He live the sinless, spotless, perfect life that God requires of us, but He went to the cross and He shed His blood in order to not just cover our sin, but to cleanse us from our sin and from all our unrighteousness. We get a sneak peek of the gospel in this Passover meal, this first Lord's Supper, as we see pictured there His life, His death, His burial. And an amazing thing at this table is the one who is going to betray Jesus. And not just the one who's going to betray Jesus, but the one who is possessed of Satan is at the table with him. What kind, what kind of blasphemous, sinful, audacious thing for Satan to show up at the Lord's Supper? Jesus said, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. He's actually dipping out of the same bowl that I'm dipping out of. Isn't that amazing? And what's even more amazing than that is that the disciples have no clue whatsoever who he's talking about. Now just let that sink in a minute, that Satan has possessed one of the disciples. He's at the table, dipping out of the same bowl with Jesus, and nobody even knows it. Isn't that a little scary? That Satan can be in the midst and nobody even know it. In verses 24 to 27, Jesus points out the service nature of his ministry and of their ministry. They start arguing. Which one is going to be the greatest? You know, we just went from Satan's at the table with us, the betrayer's at the table with us. Who's the worst guy at the table? We don't know. We can't put our finger on who the worst guy at the table is, so let's talk about who's going to be the best guy at the table. Who, who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus bursts their bubble, so to speak, when he reminds them that the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. And he reminds them, I am among you as one who serves then fourthly we see protection in verses 28 to 38 so we move from the betrayal of Judas he goes to the chief priest he's willing to take money to betray Jesus the Passover when the disciples see the gospel proclaimed in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup and are made aware that there is a snake in the grass so to speak they're reminded that this ministry is not a ministry of power and pomp and circumstance but it's a ministry of service and now Jesus provides them protection in verses 28 to 38 he looks at Simon and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So how does Jesus protect? Jesus protects by praying. Satan comes, and we remember in Job, if you've read Job's book, in the Old Testament, the book begins with Job being prosperous. He's got the happy life. Everything's wonderful. Everything's falling into place. He's living a holy life. He's praying. He's sacrificing for his children. And one day, Satan walks into the presence of God. And God asks Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
And there's this dialogue that happens and Satan is given permission to destroy everything that Job holds dear. He takes his children, he takes his home, he takes his animals, he takes all of his, all of his produce, he takes everything, his servants. And then Satan comes back and says, well, no wonder Job hasn't denied you because you've not allowed me to touch him. And God gives Satan permission to then ransack Job's life, but just not kill him. And it's an odd twist that Satan has to have permission from God and that God would give permission. And now Satan has come and he's demanded permission not for Job, but for the disciples. That word you, when it says he's demanded permission to sift you like wheat, is not singular. He looks at Simon and he says, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you all like wheat. But I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. Of course, Simon pronounces that he's ready to go to the death, to prison, even to death for Jesus. And Jesus says, well, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows today. But I've prayed for you. Which leads to the fifth part of this passage of Scripture in verses 39 to 46, and it's prayer. Jesus then leaves that scenario where he's promised his disciples that he's going to pray for them, and he goes to do just that. He goes to the Mount of Olives and he prays, and we don't have a lot of detail what he prayed, but we know that he, just, he left the disciples, and then he left Peter, James, and John even closer, and he went into uh, the garden away from them, and he fell down, and he began to pray. And what did he pray? Father, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. Don't make me drink this cup. What cup is he talking about? We'll learn more about that next week, but it's not the cup of crucifixion. Some 30,000 men had been crucified in the lifetime of Jesus alone. This was not uncommon. It was, it was terrible, but it wasn't enough to make the Son of God sweat drops of blood like this passage said. What is the agony? What is the cup he's wanting to get away from? It's the cup of God the Father's wrath being poured out, not upon Jesus' sin, but upon our sin, put on Jesus on the cross. He made him who knew no sin, who had no concept of sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might be made the righteousness of God. This is what has Jesus sweating drops of blood. This is what has Jesus in agony. This is what has Jesus saying, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Let's figure out some other way to do this. But not my will, but your will be done and as he is in such agony that he's sweating drops of blood his disciples are fasting and they're praying and they're weeping alongside of him no they are not he walks up and he finds them all asleep don't you know that was an encouragement in his last hours and he still asks yet when the son of man comes will he find faith on the earth will he find us asleep The last part of this passage is really a fulfillment of what's hinted at in these verses 1 to 46. It's a fulfillment. It's a threefold fulfillment of much of what we've seen. There's first the fulfillment of the betrayal we get hinted at in verses 1 to 6 when Judas goes and he strikes up a deal with the chief priests and the officers to betray Jesus for money. Now, in verses 47 to 53, he actually does that. As, as Jesus catches his disciples asleep, he tells them, you need to get up and pray that you don't enter into temptation. And as he's speaking, a crowd of people comes. And who is leading that crowd of people but Judas himself? And Judas comes to Jesus and he tries to betray him with a kiss. How's he going to identify Jesus? He's going to kiss him 
with a kiss of greeting. You think about this a minute. This is Satan kissing the face of God. What is the meme that goes around? It says, I like hugging my enemies so I know how, dig, how deep to dig the hole, how big to dig the hole. Judas, Satan, is willing to kiss his enemy to betray him and turn him over to the chief priests and the officers to be put to death. So we see the betrayal fulfilled. It's hinted at in verses 1 to 6. It actually happens in verses 47 to 53. And then we see Peter's sifting fulfilled in verses 54 to 62. This is predicted in verse 28 to 34. Jesus says, I'm going to pray for you. But now it's actually happening. Jesus is arrested. Peter's following him at a distance. You know, he's checking things out from a distance. A servant girl sees Peter, says, you're one of them, not me. And then another guy says, wait a minute, I know I saw you with him. Not me, Peter says. And then about an hour later... Another man says, I know you have, you, you have to be one of them. You're also a Galilean. And Peter says, absolutely not. You don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, a rooster crows. The Lord turns and looks at Peter, and Peter remembered. A day late and a dollar short, but he remembered. And he went out and wept bitterly. The betrayal happens Peter's sifting happens, and then our Passover sacrifice begins to happen in verses 63 to 71. Jesus predicted it in verses 7 to 23 as they took the Passover, as he introduced the Lord's Supper. Now the perfect sacrifice begins to take shape. They take him in. The soldiers mock him. They beat him. They blaspheme him. The chief priests and the scribes pull him away, and they say, If you are the Messiah, if you're the Christ, tell us. And Jesus says, if I tell you, you're not going to believe me. And they keep pressing him. And then you have one of the most definitive, clear statements of who Jesus is in the New Testament. They said, are you the Son of God? And he said, yes, I am. And his fate is sealed. That's a 30,000 feet view of Luke chapter 22. The betrayal the Passover meal, the role of service, Christ's protection of His people as He prays for them, His prayer in the garden and the fulfillment of those things we saw hinted at in those early verses of the betrayal Peter sifting in our Passover sacrifice. Now what do we see in this? I want us to have three things rise to the surface that really stand out to me in this passage of Scripture. Number one, Satan seeks to devour all men. Go back to verse number 31. And Jesus looks at Simon, his lead man, Peter, and he addresses Simon, behold, he says, Satan, Satan himself has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, as we saw just a moment ago, Satan has asked for all of the disciples, not just Peter. Peter's the star of the sifting, but he hasn't only asked for Peter. The word you here in the Greek is a plural you. So Jesus is telling Simon Peter that Satan has demanded to have all of the disciples. 
He wants them all. He doesn't just want Judas. He doesn't just want Peter. He wants them all. And he's demanding to sift the disciples like wheat. And I want you to know today in the 21st century Western church world, don't you think for a single second that he isn't asking for you too. Satan seeks to devour all men. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 tells us that we need to be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Satan is seeking men to devour He seeks to devour us all. He doesn't just seek to nick at us. He doesn't just seek to wound us. He doesn't just seek to hurt us. He doesn't just seek to slow us down. He wants to destroy us. He has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And He is seeking to devour every single, solitary, last one of us in this room right now. And it would bring Him great joy to do so. But I want you to hear this. And I don't want you to miss this. Satan only has power where sinful passions hold sway. Jesus came to break the power of the devil. How does he break the power of the devil? He frees us, saves us from our sin. Satan only has power where sinful passions hold sway. Listen to James chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. Each one is tempted. When? When he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts or his own passions or his own desires. Do you notice this? We can't blame it all on the devil because the devil can't do anything without sinful passions holding sway in our heart. But if there are sinful passions in our heart, Satan will carry us away and entice us by what we have in our heart. And the Bible says that when lust has conceived... It gives birth to sin. Satan sees that sinful passion. He capitalizes on it, draws us out with it. When he draws us out with it, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Judas. Judas was a lover of what? Do you know what Judas was a lover of? Judas was a lover of money. And he covered his love of money with a phony external relationship with Jesus. And John 12, verses 4 to 6, John tells us that Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So all along, Judas has been holding on to the money bag 
And all along, Judas has been slipping money out of the money bag. Why? Because the sinful passion in his heart said, I love money. Satan knew what, Jesus, what Judas really loved, and it wasn't Jesus. He knew what Judas really loved, and he used those passions, he used those lusts, he used those desires to possess him. And for 30 pieces of silver, Judas sold Jesus. And that sin led to death, both Jesus' death and Judas' death. You know what Judas did after he sold Jesus and after he betrayed Jesus and after Jesus was arrested and about to be crucified? He went out and he hung himself by the neck. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts, his own desires, his own, those things that are in your heart. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Satan only has power where sinful passions hold sway. Judas sold Jesus for money. But I need to ask us this morning, what do we sell Jesus for? For a fleeting moment of lustful pleasure, we sell Jesus. For a fatter bank account. Or that thing that we want so bad. We'll sell Jesus. Oh, we'll come back to it. We'll get him back later. But we'll sell him right now. To look good in somebody else's eyes. We'll sell Jesus. How about this one? For an hour or two, hour or two of entertainment. We'll sell Jesus. How many of us sell Jesus because that movie's really, really good? And yes, only got 400 curse words in it and a couple of bad scenes, and I can overlook those. Well, the Holy Spirit can't, and He won't. And yet, for entertainment, think about this, for entertainment, we sell Jesus. How's that going to sound on Judgment Day? Jesus, it was a really good movie. And it was very entertaining. Leonard Ravenhill said, Entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy. And that's why we are so joyless in this life, I'm afraid, because we assuage our lack of joy with entertainment. And we'll sell Jesus for a little entertainment. For a religious tradition. Let me just meddle a minute. Do you know how many people will walk away from biblical, sound, doctrinal preaching to go to another church where there is unbiblical, unsound, pitiful doctrinal preaching because they like something better over there than they like at the other. Well, you know, I really don't like the lighting. I really don't like the music. I really don't like that youth guy. I really don't like that children's guy. I really don't like their personalities. I'm going to sacrifice doctrine and sound teaching to get my, my needs met. You miss the biggest need. So we just sell Jesus for a little preference, a little religious tradition. We'll sell Jesus for Instagram. I haven't had time to read my Bible this week, Sunday school teacher. You know, I just, I just really hadn't had a chance to read my Bible. How many Instagram posts did you read? How many Facebook posts did you read? How many, how many TikTok videos did you imitate? None of you senior adults better be imitating TikTok videos. I will come to your house. I mean, really, if I see any, I'm not on TikTok, but if I hear of any senior adults doing TikTok videos, I'm done, Okay. I hope you don't even know what I'm talking about, because I really don't. I'm just saying something that I've heard of. I hope you don't know what I'm talking about. How much time you spend on YouTube? 
Let's just sell Jesus for such trivial stupidity, for lack of a better word. Satan used Judas's greed to get to him, the love of money. But we need to recognize that Satan is not particular. He is not particular. He does not care. He will use anything to get to us. Hear me very clearly. He will use our pride over our upstanding, impeccable morality. Or he will use our shame over past failures. Either's fine with him. He can use both. He'll use a tongue that wags too often and too loosely. Or he'll use someone with a timid spirit that doesn't ever say enough. He'll capitalize on riches and wealth and comfort. He'll capitalize on poverty and lack and discomfort. He will capitalize on a covetous, greedy heart that always has to have more. He will capitalize on the heart of a pious minimalist. He'll capitalize on power. He'll capitalize on weakness. Satan will gladly use either popularity and being well-known or obscurity and quiet and being that hermit who lives out in the middle of nowhere on the homestead. He'll use sports. And, you know, it's a very important tournament. It's a very important tournament every single weekend of the year. It's very important. Or he'll use church busyness. He's been around for thousands of years. Let me tell you. He'll use the things that we applaud and he'll use the things that make us blush equally effectively to get to your passions, to draw you into sin, whether it's the sin of pride and religiosity or the sin of immorality and flagrant disobedience. He will draw you in and he will entice you with what's in your heart and he will lure you away into sin and he does not care how he does it or what he capitalizes on because the wages of all that sin is death. He's out to get us. He seeks to devour us all. And he will not miss an opportunity. Second thing I want us to see is saved men stumble. So Satan's coming. He's seeking to devour us all. And saved men and women stumble. We do. Look in verses 54 to 62. Having arrested him Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest, but Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter was sitting among them, and a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Verse 58, a little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. And Peter said, Man, I'm not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. 
Satan seeks to devour all men, but saved men and saved men stumble. Saved women stumble. Peter goes from declaring his unfailing allegiance to to denying Jesus. He is declaring his unfailing allegiance, and then he denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. We can go from the best church service we've ever been to, to within 30 minutes, crashing and burning. Isn't that crazy how, how quickly we can go from the mountaintop to the valley of dry bones? Peter just blindly, ignorantly, denies Jesus once, twice, three times, and his eyes are just not opened until after he had fallen, until after he had stumbled. Wouldn't it have been nice if he had noticed the face of Jesus the first time the little girl asked him? I mean, what would have, how much could have changed if when this, when this servant girl said, you're one of them too, if he had seen the face of Jesus looking at him and he'd remembered what Jesus had warned and he remembered that Satan had requested to sift him like wheat and he had remembered the warning about the rooster crowing and he said, no, I'm not going to deny Jesus. I'll go to prison with him. I'll even die with him. But he didn't see Jesus' face until after he had fallen. Wouldn't it have been nice if he had seen the face of Jesus turned to him before he sinned, but he didn't. And we don't. Or we would never sin. You think about it. If we would see the face of Jesus at every temptation, we would never sin, would we? What kind of ignoramus would see the filthiness of sin and then see the love and the grace and the mercy and the beauty of Jesus' face and then choose sin? Nobody would. Somehow... We have short memory, short-term memory loss, blind eyes, hard hearts, dull minds, until after we've sinned. Then everything comes clear again, doesn't it? And we see Jesus' face, we say, what? An idiot. There was something critical that occurred between Peter's profession of faith and his denial of Jesus. And it's found in the latter part of verse 54. It says that Peter followed Jesus at a distance. Here's Jesus' right-hand man. He's been up in the middle of everything, always talking when he ought to be listening. And now, instead of being right under Jesus, talking when he should be listening, he's, he's slipped back and he's following at a distance. Now listen, if I've just been warned, Satan is looking for your room number. The last thing I'm going to do is follow Jesus at a distance. The last thing I'm going to do is lag behind Jesus... My only hope of protection. But if we really believe point one, that Satan seeks to devour all men, then we would never follow Jesus at a distance, would we? Yeah, right. You all agree with point one, Satan's seeking to devour us all, right? So how many of you followed Jesus super close all week long? If I ask you to raise your hands, I would probably see very few hands. Well, don't we believe point one? Yes, and we do just like Peter, and we try to follow Jesus at a distance. And when we start following Jesus at a distance, regardless of how sincere our profession is on Sunday, no matter how well-intentioned our commitment on Sunday, if we don't follow Jesus very, very closely every day, we are going to stumble. But thank God... 
Thank God that if we're His, we will never fall completely, will we? Jesus pledged to Peter, I'm going to pray for you. And he had in John chapter 17, verses 11 and 12. He said, I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Listen, just like Jesus prayed for those disciples who are about to be sifted like wheat by Satan himself. Jesus is praying for us even today. Hebrews 7.25 says that he always lives to make intercession for us. Think about that. Jesus is praying for us. So that when Satan comes to sift us like wheat, at best or worst, we stumble. We stumble. And when we stumble, He convicts us with the look of His face. And immediately, we remember how ignorant we are, how slow to learn we are. And we repent, and we return. And if we want to get bullheaded about it, and we want to turn away from His face, and we want to press on, you know what He's going to do? The Bible says He's going to do what every loving Father would do, and He's going to discipline us. Not punish us, not condemn us, but train us up in the way we should go so that when we get old, we won't depart from it. He's going to discipline us so that we can be like Him. He's there to protect us. And, and that's why saved people stumble, but they don't fall. See, Satan's seeking to devour us all, and saved people stumble, but listen to this. Lost men, lost women fall. There's a difference in stumbling and falling. Would you rather stumble in Walmart in front of everybody or fall in what? Well, maybe nowadays you could sue them if you fail and make all kinds of money. Let's just put that aside. Put aside the lawyer thing. Would you rather stumble in Walmart or fall? Right? You don't want to fall. Would you rather stumble on the edge of a cliff or fall off of it? Saved people stumble, yes, all the time. Lost people fall. And in verse number 3, look what happens. Satan is seeking to sift the disciples like wheat. But in verse number 3, Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. Wait a minute now. Why didn't Jesus pray for Judas? Why didn't Jesus protect Judas? Wasn't he one of the twelve? Well, his name was on the rolls. But Judas was not a good believing disciple that Satan snuck up on. Judas was a charlatan, a fake, a hypocrite from the beginning. If he was here today, he'd be on a platform somewhere in a sequined suit saying, give me your money, give me your money, and look what I can do for you. I can heal you. I can, I can talk the talk. That's what he was doing with Jesus. He went out and he healed, didn't he? The Bible says he went out and healed. He cast out demons. He, he did many mighty things, and he filled up the bag, and he stole it. Bought himself a private jet, if they'd have had him back then. He was a charlatan, a fake, a hypocrite from the very beginning. And you say, but, but, but wait a minute. 
Judas walked with Jesus for three years. Judas worked miracles. Judas preached the truth. Judas had a good reputation. None of the disciples even had a clue that it was him that was going to betray Jesus. There's no way Judas was not a believer. Well, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus warned, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Yes, Judas had called him Lord. Yes, Judas had done many miracles. Yes, Judas cast out demons. Yes, Judas preached in Jesus' name. And yes, Judas betrayed Jesus, was Satan-possessed, and went straight to hell. Unbeliever, which should give us pause this morning to think about the reality that you can walk into the church house, you can hear the sermon, you can say, I believe Jesus is Lord, you can pray the prayer, you can teach Sunday school, you can preach the sermon, you can sing the songs, you can bring your Bible under your arm, you can do all kinds of good things for Jesus. And you can still go to hell. Why? Because all of our good words and good works are not sufficient to save us. All of our good words and all of our good works are insufficient to protect us from the one who seeks to devour us all. The only hope we have is Jesus. Jesus who came to this earth to live the life God requires of us to check every box that needs to be checked to get us into heaven. Jesus checked every box. If you think you've checked a box, you've missed something in the gospel. You haven't checked a box. You ain't even got a pencil. Jesus checked every box for us. And then he went to the cross in our place and he took the wrath of God and he paid for our sin in full, was buried in a barred tomb and rose again on Sunday morning so that if you see the beauty and the truth of this gospel, you turn from your old ways, your old life, your sin, and you just throw yourself on his mercy and his grace. Every box Jesus checked will be applied to your account. And every sin you've committed will be deducted from your account. And when God pulls up your account, he will just see holiness, perfection, righteousness. And he will pray for you. And he'll protect you. And you may stumble, but praise him, you will never fall completely. Do you know him? Have you really ever repented of your sin and put your faith and your trust in Him? Have you ever really been transformed by the power of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ? Have you been made a new creation? Has your heart of stone been removed and been replaced with a heart of flesh? Has He put His Spirit within you to convict you of sin, to discipline you when you stray, to keep you close to Him? as Satan seeks to sift us all. Has that been a reality for you? If not, this morning, we want to invite you to turn from your sins right now, 
and to throw yourself on the mercy and grace of Christ and to call upon His name, to call upon His name until He gives you assurance that you are His child. Would you bow with me? Miss Lisa's going to come. She's going to play softly. I'm going to pray for you. Tom's going to come and sing. And listen, if you need counsel, you need guidance, you need direction, feel free to grab someone you trust. Feel free to walk down here. We'll be around the front rows. We'll be glad to pray with you, to talk with you. Me, Andy, Michael, Brett, just one of us. If you don't have anyone else that you would rather talk to, we'll be glad to talk with you, to pray with you, to point you to Jesus if you don't know him. Would you bow with me? Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us during this time. Father, we thank you for the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And as we get to this point in Luke's gospel where things are heating up rapidly, and Jesus is on a fast pace to the cross, thank you for reminding us that we have an adversary who is seeking to devour us But if we know you, if you know us, you protect us. Satan's seeking to devour us like weed, and we may stumble, but we will never fall. We thank you for that hope of the gospel and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the prayers of Christ and the fellowship of the believers all working together to preserve us. God, we thank you for the warning that if we don't know you, that we run a big risk of falling, not just stumbling, but falling headlong. Maybe we've prayed the prayer, maybe we've walked the aisle, maybe we've done the good things, but we know deep down in our hearts that you do not know us. Lord, would you convict those who don't know you this morning? Would you convict those that don't have peace and assurance with you? Would you grant them repentance? Would you grant them faith? Would you grant them the boldness to call upon your name? God, as we sing, grant them the courage to seek out one of us or someone they trust, to pray with them, to talk with them, to point them to Jesus. Well, thank you for it. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.